We back in the lab, we making some noise, so go turn your decibels up. Yeah. Black skin, white coat, oh no, who was nice as us? Made Jim really told us no limits, so we about to take this up. Went from mixing in the kitchen to the lab, and now nah, I can make this up. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We shining a light on the people of color to show them how fly it is. Be side, be scientist, be side, be scientist. We back in the lab with white coats on our back, trying to show what time it is. Hey. And welcome back to the Be Scientist Podcast, a podcast produced by the Black Science Coalition and Institute, or B-Side. When you hear this noise, we just dropped an in-podcast citation. You can find them all in our citation archive on b-side.org, backslash B-Scientist. I am geoarchaeologist Jordan Chapman, and as always, we have co-host and chemist Jana Carpenter. And today, we have University of Missouri Assistant Professor Dr. Jordan Booker. Dr. Booker is a developmental psychologist who researches, who research focuses on emotion, personality, and identity development, and how those aspects relate to children, teens, and young adults, to just name a few interests. Um, thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast. Yeah, very glad to join you all today. So I think the best place to start um, is just kind of explain what is psychology, and then why did you get into psychology? Those are great questions. So very broadly speaking, psychology is the study of human behavior, um, kind of what that behavior looks like, uh, what might be some of the things that help shape or cause that behavior, um, and what might be the, the impacts of that behavior. So um, it's a, a field that's kind of broad, uh, depending on kind of what your questions are and what you're getting at with it. Um, there's a lot of different ways of getting at, at trying to study and trying to consider those behaviors. So you have some folks who are looking at uh, brain functioning and, and how the brain is contributing to, to certain responses, either violent, uh, responses we can control or ones that are a little bit harder to control sometimes. Um, you might have folks looking at social so, uh, situations that can shape behavior. What does that look like in the moment or over extended periods of time? What kinds of opportunities and environments make it a little bit easier to act in certain ways or a little bit harder to act in certain ways? Um, developmental psychologists, we usually are focusing on how behavior is changing over longer spans of time. So where are some areas where behavior might be getting a little bit better? If you're looking at young children and you're looking at something like motor skills um, or how well they can uh, control their limbs, or if you're looking at uh, their verbal skills and how well they can read, write, um, and talk, so on and so forth. We wanna try to understand kind of what the, that process of, of change over time looks like for them, um, what might make it a little bit easier or smoother for certain behaviors to, to sort of take shape and get better, um, how might other people in, in a child's life also play a role? What is the role of parents or siblings or neighbors or teachers, so on and so forth? So um, very broadly speaking, it's, it's a lot of different ways of trying to get a behavior, and you'll see folks take some very different routes um, to looking at some different questions there. As far as my interest, um, my first interest uh, really started to merge around high school age. So um, I think I was one of like probably one out of every three people who go into psychology or something like that, read Crime and Punishment in high school and, and got a little bit interested in what it is about, you know, behaviors that we think are a little bit healthier, ones that we sometimes think are a little bit disruptive or problematic. And I wanted to really consider that more closely. So that was more my junior, senior year. I, I started reading a little bit more on what psychology might involve. I took a, a high school class on psychology that was kind of a, a very broad intro. I wanted to go into college studying that. So I went in as one of my majors, um, focusing was in psychology. The other was uh, more biochemistry. So I was thinking of trying to go a medical route with that. Um, I didn't stick with all the biochemistry stuff, but I did stick <laughs> with the psychology stuff. Um, stuck with bio 
uh, biology pretty well otherwise. But cool. yeah, from there, uh, I really found myself enjoying a lot of classes I was taking. I uh, found myself enjoying developmental psychology as a course, especially, and started getting some research experience, which I can talk about a little bit later, how I first got into that. But found that that was something that really got me excited about some of the work we were doing, some of the questions we were asking, and things just kept kind of building from there. I continued pursuing my studies and continued trying to find different opportunities to really see what it'd be like working with some of those research questions and how I could actually apply that, how I could make a career out of it. I kept going from there. So let's get into your research because I'm sure it's changed from the time you were undergrad to a grad student into now as a person with a PhD. And I'm sure like um, a principal investigator on a lot of things. So how have, how, what is your research now and how has that kind of changed from those earlier parts of your career? Yeah. So that's a great question. So my research at this stage, again, very broadly, and I, I say this very broadly because I kind of applied it in a lot of different ways, whatever kind of strikes my interest, mm-hmm. very broadly is looking at how emotions are emerging and developing across later childhood into early adulthood, how um, personality traits are really important and how they're continuing to be refined. They're not absolutely, we think of them as pretty stable and they are to a degree, but there's some ways they can change as well. And how identity development, how people understand themselves, their values, their roles in the world, how that's really uh, emerging, kicking online in those teenage years, how that's Mm -hmm. continuing to um, really change as well as they continue to progress into adulthood what the implications of all those different sort of facets of the self are and why they're important. Um, So I do a lot of that work now, looking at how people talk about their lives and how that reflects aspects of personality, how it reflects uh, parts of how they understand and view themselves and understand the world and why that's important for things like their uh, emotional skills and the ways they can regulate and control their emotions, especially the more negative ones that can be a little bit challenging for us. Uh, Ways that that's important for, sort of the positive well-being and, and facets of adjustment um, in daily life that are good for us and, and how we can see some, some contributions there, as well as the things that are helping protect us a little bit from stresses and from sort of risks to healthy behavior that are also uh, can be impacted in some ways there. Uh, trying to understand both of those sorts of broad paths for individuals, what's contributing to a better life for them. What's helping safeguard or helping us better understand at least some things that could undermine a healthy life for them? So very broadly, my research looks at that now, whether it's with um, looking at family interactions and how uh, right now moms, but eventually dads as well, moms and teenagers, usually 12 to 14 or 12 to 16 year olds, they talk about important life stories together, things that are just important to them. It doesn't have to be the most life-changing event in the world, but just how they communicate, what kinds of ways do they organize their own life experiences? How do they fill their own life events with certain emotions and certain motivations and goals that are important to them? And how do they reason about their lives? How do they make connections back to who they are as individuals? Big pieces for identity there. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do they make sense of their values that might have changed um, given that earlier experience and how it continues to be important for them? So on and so forth. Um, so I, I do a lot of that work with teens, with college age adults right now, and then sometimes we'll work with other researchers, maybe looking at some different groups of individuals, either older individuals or uh, other community uh, based adult populations, so on and so forth, to very broadly ask some of those kinds of questions. How that looks different from where I first started, um, there's some elements that are still the same, but when I started off my research um, as an older, more senior undergraduate and, and early grad student, it was really looking a lot at family interactions and really focusing pretty exclusively on emotions. Um, So I came into some research in uh, a developmental psychology lab 
that was collaborating with a clinical psychology lab. Not clinical, um, clinical colleagues are usually looking at the application of science and psychological science to treat behavioral problems and to address um, symptoms like ADHD or depression, either with children or adults. And the lab we were focusing and, and collaborating with uh, was focusing on children. So there's a, a great overlap there, wanting to understand emotion experiences very broadly for children and individuals who are trying to intervene to try to promote children's health further to address some behavioral challenges for those children. So what I was doing coming into that lab was looking at how before these families were even completing some of the treatment process, where they were going through things like psychotherapy, they were just talking with each other. They were able to hold conversations and talk about more positive events in their lives and more negative events in their lives. Um, these were children who were facing behavioral challenges, a, a type of uh, behavior problem known as oppositional defiant disorder, uh, which involves a lot of arguing, a lot of pushing back, a lot of defying authority, not so much physical aggression, but a lot of less control for these kids. They, they lash out a little bit more readily. So we were just trying to see, uh, especially for those more negative events, how could kids talk about their lives and their emotions? How could their parents help um, also give some feedback, uh, help display and model, hopefully appropriate, ways of talking about emotions and help their children sort of better understand, coach them through their emotional experiences, through those interactions. So we, we looked at a lot of these family interactions. We recorded how these families were talking with each other. And we actually took those interactions and, and tried to rate them for certain qualities. Uh, what kinds of emotions are being brought up? If we're looking at how parents are responding to kids, are they encouraging and validating children's emotional experiences, both the positive ones and the negative ones? Are they discouraging or dismissing their children's emotions? Again, both for more positive and more negative ones. You don't really see it with positive emotions, with parents just shutting kids down, but it can happen. Um, and we want to know if those differences from what parents were bringing to the table, if that's gonna be important for children's overall emotional adjustment and psychological adjustment, but also for how they respond to treatment. Are kids who are getting more support from their moms doing a little bit better over time? So on and so forth. So that was, uh, where I spent the, my earliest years doing research and, and really enjoyed the work I was doing, enjoyed the kinds of questions we were asking with that. But um, that sort of emphasis, a lot of the, the, the elements of that are still present in my work now. A lot of my focus very broadly on how parents are important uh, for their, their kids and their teens, um, giving feedback, helping model appropriate ways or certain ways of talking about things. Not only covering just the emotions now, but also looking at some of these other personality and identity elements. But a lot of that foundation is still there and still in peace, it's still in place. And now I do a, a good bit broader than focusing on more clinical questions, though there's still some of the, the, the possibility for looking at how uh, we could really look closely at risks for anxiety or risks for depression, depending on kind of what we're doing, what we're focusing on with some of our our research. So that foundational work um, that was done back at Virginia Tech with colleagues like Julie Dunsborn and, and Tom Olendick, that is still a, a major driving force and a major uh, segment of my research uh, and, and kind of how I'm continuing to ask questions going forward. I'm just kind of building on it and expanding a little bit further with some of the things I'm doing. Dope. Yeah, I actually uh, looked at your most recent publication and um, I actually wanted to dig into that a little bit because it was published this year. And so I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but I'm imagining a lot of what you studied in that paper is kind of an evolution of how people have responded to being in COVID and quarantine and, and how relationships with parents and 
young adults has kind of maybe changed a little or so this is the adjustment factors of attachment hope and motivation in emerging adult well-being yeah yeah so that was a paper we actually did the data collection for that before the, the COVID 19 pandemic but I, I think there's some ways that it still ties in and I'll, I'll, I'll bring some insights from some of our ongoing work as well um, that might fit in a little bit but that study was looking uh, with a few college adult um, populations and and how they talk about uh, some different life experiences uh, i'm trying to remember the uh, there are two data sets in that that paper the first group we were asking about some challenges in their lives times that they had some struggles some difficulties we want to see how they still bring up some still brought up some different emotion emotions and goals and how that might be important so we were specifically looking at how these young adults focus on what we call agentic values how they could still work toward personally meaningful goals ways of realizing aspects of themselves that they think are, are really true to how they see and understand themselves um, they talk about you know still pushing back on something being hard in their lives still um, asserting themselves still gaining control over themselves and their surroundings um, being the big elements of agency we thought that would be really beneficial to them and something that should complement some other aspects of personality and their lives we also wanted to see so that's sort of the getting ahead in life segment we also wanted to mm -hmm. see this other major set of goals for getting along with others what we call communion and emphasis on um, building dependable relationships getting um, closer to others understanding others perspectives as well showing care and concern for other people um, they should broadly speaking, go hand in hand with each other, getting ahead and getting along. Um, but folks can emphasize those differently and how they talk about and make sense of their own lives. Um, and there might be some differences in how that's tied back to some other aspects of personality. So we want to just get a sense on that, see if that holds up pretty well. We asked one group about some broad uh, challenges and how they move forward. Another group about, um, these were, were college students, their transition experiences to college and what that looked like, how much they emphasized agency, how much they emphasized communion with those. And we broadly saw some ways that uh, there's some ties to uh, things like feeling more hopeful, which should be tied to how you continue pursuing goals. We see a little bit of that with that project mm -hmm. and ongoing importance for, for aspects of well-being and adjustment for folks. They, they feel like they have a greater sense of purpose in their lives. They feel like they have more positive relations with others. They feel like they're able to make independent decisions, so on and so forth. Um, they feel like they're more capable of growth and development and maturation going forward. Uh, the kinds of things we really like to see. So like even just hearing you saying that and like thinking about um, that hopeful part, you know, mm -hmm. that is something that a lot of people have like talked about even during the pandemic. It's like, you know, it's it's hard to like see the I mean it yeah. or at least it was, you know, like say a few months ago where there wasn't like really yeah. process like uh -huh. the just distribution of the vaccine has kinda helped with that. But like a few months ago that wasn't like really what the conversation was. Yeah. So I would have like um and I guess it's also like a two part question because I was looking at an interview that you did with Virginia Tech on YouTube where you talked about like so you mentioned the term positive psychology and i was wondering if you could um get to that eventually but also like just going back to what i was kind of getting to right now it was just like like that hopeful part what is like what happens when you don't have that hopeful part and how do you how are people trying to how does how does that affect um these individuals yeah. i guess that's what i'm asking yeah so thinking very broadly hope this it can either be an emotional experience or it can be sort of a personality you're going to have folks who are more or less likely in their day-to-day -day lives to experience it. But very broadly, hope 
uh, involves the different ways you see yourself as able to, to accomplish important goals. You, um, when you are more hopeful, you're more likely to sort of persist in certain goals, continue pushing toward them. Um, it's in, in one sense, uh, not a perfect one, but it's sort of an antithesis to uh, things like some of the major depression um, symptoms. Where folks who are really hopeful, they, they're more likely to be able to persevere. They can see um, and keep an eye on that light at the end of the tunnel. And it kind of reflects in these other areas of their lives really well. So when that is really shaken for folks, when that is really, um, for whatever reason, uh, a lot lower for them, they're, they're at risk for um, some things that um, we'd be really concerned about, things that could involve uh, forms of anxiety, and worries about how things might work out, worries that they, they'll just fall apart, uh, worries about, uh, or excuse me, be uh, concerned about things like depression symptoms and, and feeling a sense of hopelessness. There's no point in even trying, not having the energy, um, not having the focus to go forward. Um, so as this sort of broad way of, of thinking about uh, sort of differences between individuals, hope is a really cool and, and, and really neat uh, sort of variable to think about or, or sort of item to think about. Uh, when it's really high, it's great for folks. When it's really low, it's, it's a big area of concern as well. So it's one of the reasons I, I like trying to look at and study a little bit in some studies. Um, I think you could definitely see on the whole uh, measures like hope being really shaken. Um, frankly, probably globally right now. I think uh, right. you'd see pretty much across the board, a lot of folks across a lot of different ages, across a lot of different backgrounds and with different assets and resources, probably all shaken a good bit um, over the course of this pandemic. It's been really hard and really exhausting um, for everyone. Um, and I think you could see some some facets uh, or some ways that, that major stresses could kick in that could weigh down uh, some of the ways folks typically are able to appreciate the things around them, show some things like gratitude and, and, and identify the things that are going well, ways that folks might look forward and, and be more hopeful about what could come next. Mm-hmm. Um, so on one hand, I think very broadly, um, you could see some impacts there. I don't want it to only be doom and gloom, though. I think there's some ways yeah. that in the in the midst of that, you still see a few folks who are hanging in there pretty well. They show some of this, what we call um, a more resilient um, approach in the face of a lot of the challenges. They're still finding ways to, uh, to even if they're, they're stuck in the house and, and, and bored out of their minds, still finding ways that they are doing something that's going to help safeguard their family and their friends, their community members, which might be fulfilling for them in some ways, still finding some ways that they can look toward what's going to come next and and and, and stay a little bit more optimistic on, on some of those next pieces coming. And I've got a little bit of data from last spring that I have not looked at very closely yet because it's just mm-hmm. been obvious. But um, I asked about some things like hope, hope in the middle of a very jarring time, very disruptive time. And again, I think if we're looking at the, the sort of overall levels, if we ask folks, how hopeful do you feel? How much do you feel like you, you can go pursue your next goals? Do you feel like you are able, you would have the opportunities for this? I think on average, compared to what we might've asked even the like year before, five years prior, for that entire group of folks, it's gonna probably be lower on average. Right. It's gonna look a little bit ugly. But yeah. in that group, mm-hmm. you have that variability. You're gonna have a few folks a little bit higher, a few folks a little bit lower. And I think um, within that group, there's something that's still really valuable about looking at the folks who are doing a little bit better off and seeing what might be going well for these folks in their lives. Do they have, are they reporting you know, more support from family and friends still? Are they reporting more internal resources that are helpful for them, ways they can keep a track on things and just understanding how that's going. Uh, but I think broadly speaking, it's normal um, 
mm-hmm. just from some of the ways I've been trying to talk with families in the last few months. It's normal for folks to feel a little bit shaken still. Um, it's normal to feel like there has it's been kind of a year lost in a lot of ways. A lot of folks have importantly and and and, and rightfully uh, stayed inside for for a vast majority of the last 12, 15 months doing their best and that is a hard way to live that is a you know you just miss out on on opportunities for daily interactions with folks for getting to go out and do something that's just meaningful to you for getting out to go and enjoy nature in some way or, or just you know yeah see something other than the same four walls basically hope is is a really really neat variable that i've been really interested in for a while and i think in the midst of just these widespread challenges that are tied to COVID and and other challenges for folks. I think it's going to be one of those things that's worth looking at and keeping an eye on. I think it's going to be one of the sort of biggest bang for your bucks kinds of items to look at and get a good sense on how things are going for folks. Right. Um, I have a brief comment. I think, Jenna, you might have a question, but um, just I think it's interesting that you're talking about it broadly because like I know that is like a tendency to talk about just COVID, but like even thinking about it more broadly, um, you would assume that it's like it's got to be one of those things where it's just like everyone has it and it's like it's not you know necessarily it's it's a it's a baseline factor right there's going to be so i think it's interesting that you talk about it bro because like your body isn't going to register or think about it your mind's not going to like parse out the difference between it is it necessarily a covid thing or is it just like pre-covid or even like one day when we're post or at least in a different type of world where we're not thinking about it all the time. It's going to, your body's going to respond to the stress in very similar ways to the way something else. So I think it's interesting that you're talking about it broadly, but I think Jenna, you have a question. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that I kind of wanted to bring up this element of, of culture a little bit, because I feel like when you bring awareness to things like hope and, and, you know, stressors and anxiety and depression and ADHD, I feel like, especially in the black community, I feel like those things aren't usually brought to light or even brought to a conversation. And so I kind of wanted to uh, gauge to see how you felt about, you know, like when you're talking to these students and getting their, their feedback and understanding how they process things, do you find that it's, it's less likely to be just openly sharing, oh, this is how I feel, you know, like from maybe minority group, if that influences you know, shifts in the data or not. So that's a really good sort of set of questions. I can see some, some answers trying to respond to on that, but I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, very broadly speaking, thinking about the importance of culture when we are studying uh, really any facet of behavior um, or, or attitudes, values, emotions, so on and so forth. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do something that's still coherent here and, and try to hit at some of the different pieces here. Cool, but cool. I'm gonna start with the history of it first. I'm gonna start a little bit on field of psychology's um, uh, emphasis or lack thereof when it comes to culture um, and when it comes to the inclusion of black individuals and other minority individuals within the field at pretty much every level, um, which is um, historically speaking, very, very bad. Uh, We have done an atrocious job um, when it comes to studying black communities, uh, when it comes to training uh, black students and, and researchers and faculty and when it comes to uh, supporting those and, and really asking important questions that will ultimately get back and improve understanding of black uh, behavior, black health, so on and so forth. So historically speaking, the field is trying to do better um, still, but it's a very slow process. Um, but there are major gaps in a number of areas of insights because of that, because the history has not been there where it needs to be when it comes to uh, 
representing and involving and bringing folks to the table. Mm. Um, within that, though, there are a number of researchers, um, uh, either very broadly from the field or researchers who identify as black, uh, black scholars, um, African-centered scholars, so on and so forth, who are thinking about the ways culture is very specifically um, shaping behavior, how we can think very broadly and with our more basic questions um, about how to understand behavior, how to think about it, and whether it's, again, developmental, or social, or personality, or so on and so forth, ways that we can apply our science to try to improve behavior, try to improve health. Um, again, thinking on Black um, individuals, Black families, and Black communities, and ways to, to think about doing better with resources, with intervention approaches, so on and so forth. Um, so culture is really, really important. Uh, everyone kind of is willing to at least give lip service to that. Uh, but there are some folks who are also doing a really good job of thinking about the theories that can help explain behavior from an African um, or, or African-American um, cultural lens mm -hmm. of the specific environments and assets and opportunities that are especially salient for African-Americans, thinking of the values and the attitudes that are passed on from one generation to the next that are more prevalent among African-Americans, thinking of all the different ways that that's important for behavior. So culture is really big. It's really important. And it's important in a lot of ways that we don't fully understand because we have not historically done a good job of looking at it. Thinking of some of the be behaviors, I'm trying to you know, just keep myself organized here. Think of mm -hmm. some of the behaviors that are, um, again, important and and. And if not shown it in, in some different levels or different ways, at least really salient among um, Black individuals in this country, I mean, there are some ways of thinking about when it comes to you know, approaches that, that help with learning style or, or the, the things that are going to be most important for coping and day-to-day and, and -day functioning. There are ways of, of thinking about longstanding um, African-centered philosophies, values, worldviews that continue to shape in some different ways um, the Black American experience, um, mm -hmm. ways of thinking of the importance of spirituality, which is big. More African-Americans identify with a religion than any other racial or ethnic group in the United States to this day. That's across ages, that's across socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, when it's thinking about the importance of communal values, the importance of family, heightened importance of family, both biological um, and immediate, um, extended, what we call fictive kin and individuals who are not directly related, but they are just as important in that family unit. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another element that the fam, the, the fam is yeah. important. <laughs> and, and research does not always do a good job. Often does not do a good job of bringing that into play. Mm -hmm. uh, the importance of verb and rhythm when it comes to learning, when it comes to to recreation, when it comes to all these different facets of life, things that we kind of take for granted, but psychological science does not do a great mm -hmm. job incorporating, um, or has a lot of questions with. You get a lot of pushback with sometimes. It's just it's interesting because it's like I'm I'm trying to like put it together in my head. I'm thinking about it like, like even though I'm not I, I'm not super religious, but like I do think about like the ancestors. I'm like, man, what would the ancestors say right now? Like even so, like even though I'm not like you know like what would Jesus do? I'm like, man, but but what are the ancestors thinking about? Like they probably not they they're not messing with this right now. And then I'm like, <laughs> what's going on with the fam? Like what's going on with Jenna? I'm like, that's the fam right there. So it's like, I'm just thinking about like those little like cultural things. That I think sometimes, like, oh, okay, I'm just putting it together in my head. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I feel like it's it's so refreshing to hear you talk about it, like an actual scholar here, telling, mm -hmm. like, like breaking it down for us. Because I, whenever I'm having conversations with friends, like trying to explain to them who are maybe not from my same demographic that 
you know, this is how I'm feeling, but I can't really explain why I'm feeling like this. And, and it's like, it, because it's so complex, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a psychological <laughs> scholar. So it's hard for me to like relay that information. So I just, I really just want to emphasize how important your work is because it's, it, it is so complex and I wouldn't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's the daunting thing for a lot of folks. Um, very broadly speaking, you know, humans are messy. There's a lot of stuff going on for all of us. Right. Um, but even trying to be very sort of purposeful in looking at some of these elements that, that we recognize should be at play, I mean, to some degree we, we, we know we're at play. Um, it's so daunting that I think a lot of folks who would be capable of, of going a little bit further, doing a little bit better, have been really hesitant uh, or just kind of throw their hands up in the air sometimes. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, I, as an, I'm not a cultural anthropologist. I'm more, I'm an archeologist and even then I'm more of an earth scientist in a lot of ways, but even thinking about our own um, history as like, you know, anthropology doing a lot of race-based science and how like a lot of that um, idea did come from anthropology. So even that's something we're having a reckoning with too. Like even in archeology span too, there's now um, trying to understand those intersections between like what's going on, like in terms of like the artifacts and then just thinking about like, how does that play into um, say how one concept that I've read, cause I'm reading for comps right now. So excuse me, but like, there's something like called Creolization and that's just a lot of anthropologists trying to figure out how, what are the roots of African American culture and how do those relate back to West yeah. African, West African culture. And it's just interesting. So, I mean, it, it, that's not something that was being done like, or at least as much, you know, say 50, 60 years ago, and even yeah. definitely longer than that. Yeah, uh, that's an excellent set of points, yeah. So also, I'm wondering too, because I don't want to like make you psychoanalyze yourself, but I am curious as someone who studies this stuff, like how do you like kind of like look back on and put it onto yourself? And do you try to stay away from doing that too much? Do you go talk to somebody? How does that work with you? Because I'm sure sometimes you're like, oh, like you might read it. Like, I'm sure while you were learning all this in like grad school and undergrad, you would read something like, oh, that's why I do that. So I'm just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> to some degree, yes. I, okay. I, I board with it. But I, I, there are, uh, just from some of the things that I happen to study, like I study a lot with life stories and mm-hmm. how it makes sense of what they've, they've gone through in the past and how that's important for them. And I look at how well people do that. How you know coherent are they? How organized are they? Or, or how much do they, you know, bring in certain emotions or, or keep a focus on their important relationships with others and so on? And it's sometimes it's a little bit uh, tempting to if I'm sort of casually talking about you know, how my day was with someone or just catching up with someone I haven't seen for a while, sort of catching myself sometimes being like, wait a minute, did I? Right, how well did I really do that? And, mm-hmm. and how much of myself did I just give away in, in doing that? <laughs> so on and so forth. Right. Um, and it's not in, in bad ways. It's, it's all that stuff is good for you. But, um, you know, it, it gets a little bit easy sometimes, so especially depending on what you're studying, um, that sometimes you'll, you'll find some parallels or some ways that things are really salient for yourself, really uh, sort of match some of the things you might be feeling and experiencing. Uh, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Um, I have never tried very purposefully um, studying things that I thought would have a lot of overlap with my own experiences. In right. the sense that I, I know some individuals especially if they're thinking about their um, dissertation as a graduate student, they might look at a big project and say, you know, I went through this particular kind of experience before and it shaped, uh, I think it really helped explain why I have some challenges with anxiety or or with uh, some other um, uh, uh, sort of challenge that they've confronted and had to overcome in some way perhaps. 
and they are very purposeful about wanting to continue study that, uh, studying that and understanding it better, which I think can be really helpful in some ways. It can also be, depending on what it is, a little bit daunting in some ways, again, for some of those folks, if you are, um, especially if it's not a completely resolved um, mm-hmm. sort of circumstance for you, it can be really, really, sometimes painful, sometimes just really challenging in its own right. Um, if you are you know, asking folks about very, very difficult experiences, you're asking them about past traumas, or you're asking them about something that has limited um, their, be- their, their opportunity for certain behaviors, or if you're thinking in some other related fields, thinking about forms of disability, try to understand that better, or other illness and, and health risks, uh, you know, those are important questions. They are hard questions if there's so much overlap with yourself that, that you're having a harder time teasing out who you are from this work that you're, you're trying to get done a little bit more broadly. Um, so it's one of those things I've never pushed too, too hard for. Um, That's fair. I already uh, said in studying, you know, doing a lot of the earlier studies of, of kids with aggression, uh, you know, it's great work. I enjoyed it at the time. I don't need to study a whole bunch on aggression. I'm good at being really aggressive. I'm going to go study some of the other stuff. Um, right. I can lash out when I need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me go understand, you know, hope or, or forgiveness or gratitude a little bit better, um, which is also a lot of the stuff I do on, uh, from time to time with some of my studies. So uh, I've never really pushed too, too hard for a lot of that. A lot of work that's very, very close to home. I've thought of some possibilities and maybe doing something that would be on some life stories of maybe family members or something, maybe a smaller project. Um, but that'd be more for my family than more for me. Um, but it'd be a neat way, again, just thinking of you know family history, uh, history ancestry in some different ways mm-hmm. of connecting some of the things that I'm bringing to the table with some of my insights, some of the things that I have no clue on that they still have to share and just getting an appreciation for that in a different way on my end. Um, but I haven't done it yet. We'll see if I, I, I pull that up um, or not. Cool, cool. Yeah, I I was wondering about that because I feel like doing this kind of work could could be emotionally bearing. I don't know. I I, I just I feel like for me at least, I don't know how I would be able to effectively separate you know my feelings from the work. You know, just because I'm just not an emotional person, so it's like <laughs> that's just partly just me. But uh, I was just wondering how you do that, and maybe how you are able to separate yourself from your work? Do you have any hobbies that you like to do that separates you and, and you can express yourself in different ways? Yeah, so it, it depends a little bit on what I'm working on, but some of the some of the content we do um, can be challenging. So uh, I've done um, some collaborative work before where we have looked at the um, stories of folks being brought into the emergency department uh, over at Grady um, and, and how people talk about same day, you know, what freakish car accident or, or what freakish home accident your ceiling collapsed on you or, or what assault brought you to the hospital tell us about that and then we're looking directly at the those life stories and trying to break them down for some different characteristics and that that is that is painful work that is exhausting work when you have um we're listening to family stories and, and uh, you know they're talking about parental divorce or a loss of a loved one or a really severe um, cancer diagnosis and, and so on. But those are painful experiences. Or if they start arguing with each other, mm-hmm. it's also kind of painful to the way. Um, you know, it it is it is a it can be emotionally demanding depending on just how closely you're working with some of that um, content. Um, the ways that I'm usually working with that, that data is looking closely at it, but it's not a, a super duper deep dive like you might see with more qualitative researchers who are doing some very heavy interview work, some very heavy looking for um, 
nuanced themes within one person or one small group's um, stories and experiences. I'm usually looking for some broader sort of common themes that I can carry from one person's experience to the next person's and, and finding some values that are comparable between them. So it's it's not a, a an entirely intimate sort of experience in that same sense of working with the data, but it's still just going through and, and hearing or reading about some of the things that are um, can be really painful for folks, you know, unless you are really, really cut off from, <laughs> from connecting from others. Mm-hmm. It, it's, uh, you're usually going to find yourself empathizing in a lot of ways and some ways that can be painful and you might need to get a break from, um, depending on the projects we've, we've had some ways working with our students before where you know, we made sure to pace ourselves, made sure to have times where we could step back. Um, I've had to do that, uh, in the last few years with some of the data I've collected with young adults. So I asked them about, um, kind of very broadly, some of the more challenging experiences they've had, you know, the things that are common in the American young adult experience, uh, loss of life, um, challenges with job loss, challenges with substance abuse, challenges with incarceration. Not everyone experiences all those things um, in their 20s, but a large number of people do. And those events stand out to them. They'll, they'll walk you through in good detail, more often than not, Kind of what that challenge was. Um, and that's hard for them to do and that it's hard for you to, to, to go through again. Um, so really trying to be mindful for myself and, and for my students uh, as we go through those kinds of experiences and give ourselves the, the space to step back and, and breathe and, and recuperate a little bit as need be. It can be a little bit harder depending on what you're working with. And again, that's one of the things you, you want to be mindful of your own sort of health and, and, and mental well-being, those of your colleagues and, and collaborators as well and mindful of what you're asking from your participants. Because if you ask for a really painful experience, they can usually do that for you. They can give it to you. Uh, so not not going overboard. Um, mm-hmm. Things that we as, as folks uh, collecting human-based data, we have to be mindful of. Uh, not to introduce something that uh, is ethically questionable or is uh, an undue stressor or, or risk to, to an individual. No, that makes sense. Um, you don't want to, you know, I'm, I don't know much about the IRB, but I know you don't want to get, you don't want the problems basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so we're coming to the close of the semester and I know we were talking about it a little bit earlier, but like you have, um, a couple classes that sounded really interesting, like intro to development. I don't know if it was an intro class, but you were talking about you had a developmental psychology class, but you also had an African-American psychology class, if I'm not mistaken. Um, could you kind of give us like, what would it be like to be a student in your class, like right now as the semester's kind of winding down in that class? So right now I'm teaching a course on African-American psychology. And this is a course that's for students across different academic levels, kind of broadly speaking. But we are, we're in person with that class right now. It's a little bit of a smaller group. So we, we have a space that's large enough for us to spread out with that room. And we're covering different sort of major topics as they are relevant to uh, African-Americans in the United States right now. So we previously, we've covered a little bit on the history of, of African-Americans and history of, of psychology as relevant for African-Americans. We've talked about um, race and racism very broadly and, and identity development. We've talked, um, the last few weeks, we, we went over uh, physical health and, and physical illness among African-Americans. What are the trends for health and illness, what are the assets and resources, as well as the barriers to health access in the U.S. Uh, We also talked a little bit about mental health and, again, some comparable ideas there. Theories that help us explain certain mental health outcomes, ways of taking an African-centered lens to um, improving mental health 
resources and approaches for Black individuals, Black families, particularly thinking about the involvement of the family. Even if you're working with an individual, get the family on board. Uh, they're the ones who are going to be sort of in that person's corner anytime they're back at home or, or um, heading to and from school, to and from work, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. We're about to switch gears for our last uh, few weeks of the semester thinking about religion among African-Americans and moral behaviors, uh, helpful behaviors, as well as understanding things like aggression and, and what we call antisocial behaviors. Um, so we're going to spend some time with lecture on that, do some um, opportunities for some smaller sort of follow-up questions, make sure folks are, are understanding kind of the stuff I'm throwing at them and, and hopefully not too much at them. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, my students are also going to be doing, um, right now they're, they're about to be working on a, a short persuasive letter um, that's going to be on, it's kind of, it's open-ended, it's a creative writing in a sense for them, but on any topic about sort of public health very broadly defined, that's relevant for black individuals or black communities. So from anything we've covered this semester, um, just picking something that is important to try to improve. It it could be on risks for physical health or illness. It could be on racism that's impacting education or work. It could be on community and neighborhood resources, so on and so forth. talk a little bit about what that issue is, why it's a problem, and how we could do better as a country, either at the very local level, or maybe statewide, regional level, or nationally. What is some way, um, from what they know in class or beyond, uh, that we could try to do a little bit better there? And just adapting some of that knowledge they've been picking up in some different ways and incorporating that a little bit differently. So between lecture and that, they'll be spending some weeks doing that, um, doing that work. And that'll be some of the last stuff we do before we uh, really wind down Mm -hmm. for the semester. But, um, I'm hoping, I'm not expecting them to memorize every single sort of theory, topic, um, mm-hmm. construct we've talked about over the semester. I've done a good bit of stuff at them. And they've hung in with me. Uh, <laughs> right. patient. But uh, we've covered a lot of ground trying to just figure out these different areas that are these different themes and topics that are really important. So I'm hoping that, you know, with these last few weeks, we can uh, just wrap up a little bit uh, fairly well appreciate a little bit of the ways that they've really shown some great mastery and, and grasp of these topics. They've been, uh, they're representing a few different majors. We've got students who are in psychology, students who are in black studies here at Mizzou, um, and a few students from other majors as well. And they've done a great job really hanging in there um, as we've covered a lot of ground on some really challenging topics from time to time. We've talked about, uh, again, uh, how psychology as a field has been used to find some really painful and, and not true and, and negative um, uh, characteristics about black people, uh, whether it's about intelligence, whether it's about certain behaviors or, or need for certain resources, um, ways that um, schools, um, very broadly defined, and, and colleges um, were not accessible, not open, not, uh, were not allowing black individuals to attend, and how that's had ongoing impacts, how that's um, uh, shaped the, f- uh, the field for professional psychology, but also across all the years of, of grade school and college, how that's continued to be impactful. Uh, we've talked about differences for um, education, uh, the ways testing has been used and abused at times when it comes to black students. Yeah, GRE. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. we've we talked a little bit about the standardized test and mm-hmm. the different forms those take. Um, the same with employment opportunities mm-hmm. and differences uh, in income among um, black individuals uh, countrywide um, and, and how there's mismatches and discrepancies there and a little bit on, on why that might be the case. So uh, they've, they've really hung in as we've covered a wide range of topics. And I'm trying not to just bludgeon them with like, here's how terrible everything in the country is, <laughs> but, but trying to make clear on why we see differences from time to time, and why that's important for behaviors as we go on into that, whether we're talking about learning, whether we're talking about language, um, 
talking about emotions and so on and so forth and, and connections back to family connections back to spirituality balance with nature so on and so forth as all being really important in, in these many different facets of life so they've been really patient with me in the midst of all this pandemic stuff still <laughs> and uh, i'm hoping that and they, they've done well with a lot of the assessments they've done well with our quizzes and so on so i'm, I'm hoping that it's a, a good experience for them and, and something that's going to wind down uh, nicely for them and let them uh, walk away with at least a few insights that'll be applicable no matter where they're trying to take things next. I was wondering, you said something about being an undergrad and I was wondering if you were a traditional student in terms of like, um, first, like, were you a traditional student or are you more like first gen or anything along those lines that you might want to talk about? Yeah. So I can, I can talk about that a little bit. So I was not a first generation student. Mm -hmm. My father went to Norfolk state. Uh, so I had uh, some family members with some college experience, okay. uh, but, um, I, I did my undergraduate studies. I did both my undergrad and grad at um, Virginia Tech um, in Southwest Virginia. Okay. Uh, I, was the, I was not the first one in my family to get uh, to go on to master's studies, but I was the first one in my immediate family to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, I went on to grad school. I was the first in my family to get a doctorate. Um, so uh, not, not wholly first-gen, but some experiences that were still novel, kind of what to expect and, and how to make sense of things, how to navigate things, especially right. – as I started moving into grad school, um, my parents did everything they could to, to support and, and be on board, but they were like, you know, we, we don't know what, what to expect. <laughs> so make sure you find someone who, who can help with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I will say that I had some, some great mentors, some great networks um, in my graduate um, career that really did uh, make a lot of the difference for me. So I had really, really good mentoring from my advisor, um, my primary advisor, Julie Dunsmore, my co-advisor, Tom Omendick. I had other individuals across campus, uh, within and beyond uh, my department, who were really in my corner, really supportive as well. So I was part of, um, I did SREB uh, for a while. So I had uh, Southern Regional Education Board. So I, I had some network support from them. Um, but I also did IMSD at Virginia Tech, um, Initiative for Maximizing Student Diversity, uh, which represented sciences across, uh, across campus. So I had some colleagues over in chemistry and, and bio and physics. Um, we, we got together and just shared very broadly with kind of what folks were doing and supporting each other. We thought about some aspects of professional development together. And uh, we also just, we had folks who were about the same stages of their graduate career. So if you had someone who was really frustrated about their, their thesis coming up or a certain offense or, or trying to figure out how to write a grant for the first time, uh, you know, you had folks who were in your corner really understood a little bit more um, than sometimes with other peers, other colleagues you might find. On, on how to support you with that, at least how to let you sort of vent and know what you were, where you were coming from with some of that venting with that. So I had some really, really good supports um, during my graduate career that I think really supported, really, uh, and really helped me to, to make sure I stayed on track with a lot of that. Nice. Um, are you from the VA DMV area? Yeah, I, I'm okay. originally, um, originally born in Harrisonburg, then lived in Roanoke in Southwest Virginia for a number of years, uh, then did my undergrad and grad studies at Virginia Tech, right. and then moved down to Emory in Atlanta for hey, post-doctoral okay. studies for a few years, cool. and then bounced out to, to Missouri. <laughs> nice. Um, just one last question. So um, this is Be Scientist, and we always ask our guests at the end, how do you encourage other people to be scientists? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So thinking very broadly, um, one of the, the best ways to get exposure to 
science and figure out if that that field of science or that that approach to the science is going to be for you is to try to find some opportunities for research around your campus if there are um, folks who are doing um, research in the, the areas and the major you're already in you know reaching out to your faculty um, reaching out fairly early this semester um, you know, it's a little bit easier midpoint rather than at the very end um, to see if someone's going to have some openings sometimes and, and if they still have space mm-hmm. um, but but if you have a class that you're really enjoying asking uh, that faculty member if, if they are running a lab if they're expecting to be able to take some more folks on or if they're not if they know some other folks and they know um, so many if they have any recommendations or if they might be willing to write a letter of support so on and so forth you've been doing really well you've been attending you've been um doing nice with with the different assignments there you know you have someone who's probably going to be pretty open to writing a strong and a positive ask that they'll be positive first mm-hmm. uh letter <laughs> for you uh so you can make sure that um you can get some good exposure um and the nice thing especially if you're looking more your sophomore your junior year is that that exposure even if that particular set of research isn't quite for you now you know that you haven't tried going all all the way into a graduate program with that very specific focus yet you can switch things up a little bit and find another opportunity that might be a little bit more close uh, closely aligned with your interest at the undergrad level if you're thinking of moving on and into graduate studies, into a field with science, you know, the biggest thing is getting some research experience in and of itself. Um, it's nice if you get some research experience that feels like a really good fit for where you want to go. But even if that that first research uh, lab experience, for whatever reason, isn't quite where you saw things, um, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting experience in and of itself is really key. Um, but sometimes, you know, just putting yourself out there a little bit and asking um, uh, either faculty you're already working with or, or other faculty in the department or across campus, it's a great way of hearing about some of the opportunities going on, or those folks sometimes know other opportunities um, across campus or on other campuses that might be accessible to you. So uh, it's, it's a little nerve wracking at first. Putting yourself out there is, is one of the, the really nice ways of getting your foot in the door. Cool. Um, sounds good. We appreciate you being on the show um, this Saturday. We always appreciate our guests. And so thanks for being here. Yeah, very glad to. I appreciate you all reaching out. Um, and Jenna, as always, I'm. We're happy to have our co-hosts. Um, so let's get out of here. Um, this is Be Scientists, and don't forget to be scientists. Be Scientists is a podcast by the Black Science Coalition and Institute, or BSI, a 501c3 nonprofit. Be Scientists is hosted by both Jenna Carpenter, chemist, and BSI's research and development officer, and Jordan Chapman, geoarchaeologist and BSI's president. Music is produced by Delarallo, and lyrics are by Ed Yana. Special thanks to Michael Mike Cast and Marshall and the Plaza Abbey Studios. If you'd like to donate to B-Side, visit our official website, bside.org. That's b-side.org. Your donation supports the B-Scientist and B-Side's other projects. We couldn't do it without you. So please tune in next time and always be scientists.